We're heading into a new, new part of Luke. We're going to be in chapters 5 through 10, which will take us to the end of next year, or excuse me, to the end of this year in uh, Thanksgiving. This, uh, this first section is about a six-week section. It will take us to the end of June, not including Mother's Day. It will be in chapters 5 through 7. But as you can see on the, on the screen, the, the theme of these chapters is follow me. Now, what comes, what comes to your mind when you hear those words, follow me? Maybe you're thinking about somebody who's a leader. Maybe you're thinking about submission in some respects to somebody who's in charge. Maybe your boss or for you kids, maybe your parent, whoever it might be. When I think about follow the leader, I, my mind races back to a time when I was a kid. I think about one of my favorite games growing up, you know, follow the leader. Anyone else enjoy that game, like that game? <laughs> you know, we often think about being a kid, and didn't life seem to be simpler as a child? Didn't life seem to be free of, of the complexities of, of making decisions and taking responsibility and, and so much of thinking back about the, the simple days of being a child had a lot to do with learning to follow the leader. Had a lot to do with allowing your parents or your teachers or those who were in authority to, to call the shots. And, and you as a child did not have to figure out the complexities of life. You didn't have to try to position yourself in, in making those right decisions. All you had to do was align your heart and follow the person that was in charge. That, of course, as we grow up, is not the spirit of adulthood. <laughs> That's not what we have learned from culture. That, that is not the, the right kind of response for us in, in these days for those of us who are adults, we're, we're told, be your own person. We're told, think for yourself. Stand on your own two feet. Be independent. Make up your own mind. Submission and following after authority is not something that is ingrained into our psyche. Not something that we normally do. It is really the attitude that has kind of built its way into society and has gone all the way back to the very beginnings of the, the beginning of, uh, of this country, the foundations of this country, found in our entertainment, found in our poetry, found in our teaching, in our media, and probably resented, uh, represented most concisely by the philosopher and poet Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was a transcendentalist in the 1800s who summarized this spirit with this quote, insist on yourself, never imitate. That is the spirit of the age. That, that's the attitude that begins to shape us as a, as a culture. But as we step into Luke chapter 5, and, and as we work our way to Luke chapter 10, we, we will find that true discipleship has nothing to do with that kind of attitude. As the Apostle Paul will say, Imitate me as I imitate the Lord Jesus. And all throughout his letters will call his church, the churches that he, that he helped to, to found by the grace of God. He calls them to this mimicking, imitating kind of life, 
a life that aligns itself and follows after the footsteps of Jesus. Much like what we learned in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, 21, where we're, we're called to that kind of life. We're called to, to embrace the calling with which we were called to, to follow after the steps of Christ who set the example for us in terms of suffering. We're called to imitate. And every disciple of Christ will embrace that kind of attitude. The kind of attitude that is following after the leader, following after the person of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Now, there are a lot of leaders we could follow after, but there is one supreme leader. There is one king of the universe. There is one savior who has come and has modeled and emulated true and perfect leadership. And he as we'll find in Luke chapter 5 and continuing on through Luke chapter 10, is a leader that is trustworthy, a leader that you can depend on, a leader who has authority and power, and a a leader who is calling you to a purpose and wants you to fulfill that purpose as you emulate his life. Jesus will talk about discipleship through these next several chapters, and he will call, a, call his listeners to follow after him. Jesus, as we find in Luke chapter 5 through Luke chapter 10, has a right to demand your allegiance. If you are a follower of Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ for salvation, Jesus has a right to demand your leadership or your uh, allegiance. We begin our time in Luke chapter 5. And I want to just draw your attention to the broader themes of this chapter. We're going to find five different events that are taking place in this chapter. And I want to just call your attention to them as we get started. Because I want you to realize that that while these stories may seem very random, they may seem like just this chronological path of Christ in working these things out in, in the lives of those who are in front of him, I, I want you to know that Luke, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is selecting these stories with a strategic focus. He has a theme that he, he wants us to come to understand. So if you have your Bibles, or if you need a Bible in front of you, page 860 is where we'll find Luke chapter 5. Turn there with me if you would. There are five main events, and I just want to draw your attention to them briefly and and help to try to provide some some common thread between these. What what are the the unifying themes that that draw these stories together? Notice, verses 1 to 11. Your Bibles will have a heading there. What, What is the heading that you see in your Bible for verses 1 to 11? What do you see? Jesus calls his disciples, okay? Uh, the, the next major heading is verses 12 to 16. What do you see there? Jesus cleanses a leper. Good. And then from verses 17 to 26, you'll see that Jesus heals a paralytic. And then from verses 27 to 32, Jesus calls Levi. And then from verses 33 to 39, we'll see a question from the disciples of John the Baptist who are coming and, 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 and asking this question about why do the disciples of John the Baptist fast and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? 
What is the unifying theme? I don't have this in your notes, but I would just encourage you, we'll be working on Luke chapter 5 today and next week, and in preparation for next week, I want to just give you three major themes that, that help to unify these passages that you can observe as you are reading through this chapter and come prepared next week as we dig into this chapter again. The first is that Jesus will confirm his deity. Jesus will confirm his deity. Now that's important because if you're going to follow a leader and you're going to choose a leader to follow, you're going to want to follow a leader who is worthy of your allegiance. God is worthy of your allegiance and Jesus will state emphatically through the miracles that he will perform and through the, the statements that he will make, he will help his listeners and observers to know he, in fact, is God. Jesus will confirm his deity. Second, we're going to see that Jesus confronts sin. You see, when you come face to face with God, when you come to the place of recognizing that God is in your midst, you come to a place of understanding that he as a holy God cannot tolerate sin, and you as a person who is broken and sinful should not be in the presence of a holy God. So Jesus will confront sin, and Jesus will address it and help his followers and his listeners to recognize that, that sin has a solution. Sin doesn't leave you in a place of disrepair. Sin has a solution. That solution is found in Jesus. Jesus as the only way, truth, and the life. That those who believe in him, who, who confess their sin, who repent and turn away from sin and turn to Christ and follow the leader, those disciples will enjoy and experience the benefits of forgiveness and cleansing. And finally, that Jesus calls these followers who have come to a place of recognizing their sin, who have come to a place of awareness of who God is, Jesus is as being God, will be those who also follow him. And there is a call to discipleship that we're going to see. These three things help to bind our study together and this chapter together as we work our way through. The good news that we learned in chapter 4 is the good news that we're going to see in flesh and blood beginning in chapter 5. As the, the good news of the kingdom, the, the good news to the poor that we saw in Luke chapter 4 verses 18 and 19 is, is the good news that Jesus will bring as he presents himself as God, as he addresses sin, and the good news of leading people, disciples, to, purpose, to the purpose that God has called them to to follow after him, to embrace the mission that he has called them to. We live in an age of independence, don't we? we? We don't need anybody. We don't depend on anyone. We are not tied to anyone. We are those who are committed to our rights, our choice, our freedom, our decisions. Trust yourself, never imitate. We are not those who would tend to surrender tend to yield, tend to submit, tend to follow. And yet this morning, if you are a disciple of Christ, this morning if you have committed yourself to believe in Jesus as the only way for salvation, you are 
by nature then have been given a new nature then to follow after Jesus. And so this, that we're going to be looking at this morning, should be the quality of your life, the attitude that just consumes you as an individual and marks you as a believer. Jesus, the Son of God, Son of God demands your allegiance today. And he is worthy of it. He is worthy of your allegiance. And that will, that's what we'll see. He's worthy of your allegiance as we come to understand the significance of the word of God coming through the mouth of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that two ways. In verses 1 to 11, we're going to see that the word of God has power to bear fruit. The word of God has power to bear fruit. Now, this is really good news. This is good news for those who are followers of Jesus because the mission and purpose that God has called you to is a mission and purpose that can be accomplished as you align yourself to the word of God and as you understand those words and bring them to bear on the culture and the friends and the loved ones that are in your community, that are in your sphere. And as they come to bear on your own heart and life, God will bear fruit through his word. It will not return void. Look at this with me in Luke chapter 5, verse 1. Notice. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of what, church? The word of God. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. The, the phrase that is used here, the word of God is in such a way, grammatically, to help draw attention to the actual words that are coming directly from God himself. Now, we, when we speak of the word of God, we, we speak symbolically of the Bible that we hold in our hands, which is also, in fact, the words of God compiled for us in the book we call the Bible. But here, as the people in the first century were listening to Jesus speak, there was a quality about his words. There was something that was distinctive about his words that helped call attention to the fact that God, in fact, was speaking through Jesus Christ. It was, in fact, the word of God. Jesus begins his Galilean ministry, and because of the, the word of God that came from the mouth of Jesus, it, it drew crowds, as we saw back in chapter 4, verse 14. A report went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. Why? Because when Jesus spoke, they understood and, and recognized the quality of the words, the words coming from God, words that contain power and authority, as we see in chapter 4, verse 36 and 37. All were amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out and report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. We see that the word of God has power to bear fruit because the word of God has authority. The word of God from Christ has authority and we see that as we move our way through these first several verses. Jesus is ministering at the Sea of Galilee which is mentioned here as the as the lake of Gennesaret, it's the same place. This, this body of water that Jesus often would minister at. 
And here he is at a, a, this perfect venue, which would have been a, a great amphitheater for projecting sound to the masses who were, who were waiting to hear from him. Here, Jesus speaks with actual authority, speaking the very words of God, speaking with force, speaking in a way where the words of God were accessible, not based upon tradition, but, but the word of God that was applying directly to their situation. It was near, it was accessible. But while Jesus spoke to the crowds in this situation, he had a greater purpose in mind. And Luke will take us on that venture, and he will use Jesus really as an object lesson for the main point that Jesus intends to demonstrate to his disciples, because really, they are the target audience here. The rest of the crowds are just the beneficiaries of the teaching. But the disciples, as we'll find Peter and Andrew and James and John, are the, are the real target audience that Jesus intends to help them understand the significance of the authority of the word of God and the power that it will bring. Notice verse 2. Jesus is teaching. The crowds are pressing in. And it says, And he saw, speaking of Jesus, he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Remember that a lot of time has gone by. Here we find even at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, as much as 10 to 12 months have gone by in terms of Jesus' ministry in, Ju in Judah before he even moves to Galilee. And several months of ministry in Galilee that are coming before this moment where Jesus is now interacting again with his disciples. They had witnessed Jesus' baptism. They were with him in Judah as he carried out several months of ministry. They had participated with him in the ministry in the Jordan River across from John the Baptist. But they were not officially disciples yet. That's not going to happen until Luke chapter 6. But here, they're loosely connected to Christ in his ministry. And here they are, by design, Jesus fulfilling his teaching ministry by coincidence, no, by providence, right next to where these disciples are. They're still making a living. They're washing their nets. They're fishing at night. And Jesus is drawing himself into them so he can teach them something very significant about who he is and about what his words can accomplish. His words will bear fruit, and we'll see that. We'll find in verse 3, verse 5, that these disciples, Peter and Andrew and James and John, had fished all night long. And here they are at the Sea of Galilee, and, and, and normally fishing would happen in the evening. Jesus gets into their boat and uses Simon's boat as a platform for teaching, as we see in verse 3. Getting into the boat, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. But again, that's all a setup for the real ministry, the real point of this narrative today. Because Jesus wants to focus his disciples and draw attention to the fact that his words have power. That's what we see in verses 4 and 5. Jesus will instruct his disciples. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. Jesus' word has authority. 
And Peter, in submission to the word of God, to the word of Christ, aligns his heart to follow after the leader. Next we see in verses 4 to 9, not only did Jesus' words have authority, but Jesus' words have power. That night had been an absolute failure. Peter and his friends had caught nothing. Now, don't misunderstand. These were master fishermen. They had been fishing for their entire life. They knew the right places. They knew the right time. They knew the right technique. And they'd been doing this for years, and yet they came up empty. And that's because God had something for them to learn. God had something to prove. God wanted to prove through Jesus that his words bear fruit. Here we find some instructions that Jesus gives. Jesus, by the way, the carpenter, is now instructing master fishermen how to do their job. (laughs) And Peter, although weary from a night's work, aligns his heart to the will of of Jesus and pushes out into the deep. Now, this was all wrong. This was the wrong time of day. This was the wrong place in the water, but they still obey. And then the impossible happens. Notice verse, verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats. So they began to sink. The nets capture such a great increase of fish, more fish than they'd ever caught before in their life, Finally, they're experiencing the benefits of this financial gain, all these fish that are coming into the boat. And they did this because of the word of Christ, and the fish were caught because of the fruitfulness of that word. And in this moment, Peter comes to a realization. Peter realizes that God is in his boat. Peter recognizes that he is in the presence of God. Of glory. And if you remember in speaking about glory, we said that glory is the, the manifestation of God's presence. It's that God puts himself on display. When he does that, that's glory. And he then makes this dramatic statement that we find in verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. It's much like Isaiah's response when Isaiah beholds the glory of God, the the glory of the throne room and the the holiness, the the spectacle of the majesty of God in Isaiah chapter 6. And he says, Woe is me! For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And in this moment, the boat becomes a temple. Because Peter, in worship, bows himself in recognizing his sinfulness and seeing and being aware of the holiness and the glory of Christ, the deity of Christ put on display through this massive catch of fish. 
And Peter releases everything. He releases the nets. In a sense, he turns his back on his friends and on all this massive catch, and he bows before the Lord and worships before him. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. One commentator puts it this way, when Simon Peter saw the evidence of that in the miraculous catch of fish, he was overwhelmed with the realization that he was face to face with a holy God. Peter, fully aware that if, if he saw deity, deity saw him too. And he realized that the one who could see the depths of the lake could see the depths of his heart. And he recognized for himself that he was a sinful man and did not deserve to be in the company of a holy God. Depart from me, God. I am unclean. I am unworthy to be in your presence. What was it that made Peter respond this way? Having heard all of Jesus' teaching, having seen all of Jesus' miracles, having even experienced firsthand uh, the casting out of demons and the, the healing of diseases and entire villages of people coming to be, to be cleansed. But in this moment, somehow this miracle touched Peter in a new way. It was intensely personal. It was humanly impossible. Peter knew fishing, and this was unmistakably the hand of God, and he was in the presence of of the I am. The boat does become a temple and Peter bows his heart to worship this one true God. But notice in verses 10 to 11, what should have led to isolation, what should have led to separation actually leads Jesus to comfort Peter. In verse 10, we find Jesus says to Simon, Halfway through the verse, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. What an unusual statement. What an unexpected statement. That while Peter recognized what he deserved, he, he deserved separation from a holy God, Jesus was drawing him in. Jesus was helping him to understand that there would be pardon there would be forgiveness. There would be cleansing that would come as Peter would follow him and pledge his allegiance to Christ. Jesus would pay the price for Peter's sin. Jesus would qualify Peter and Andrew and James and John for ministry. Jesus would transition them from being fishers of men to being fishers of souls. And as an object lesson on that day in preaching to the masses from their boats, he would show them how fruitfulness would happen through the word of God. Jesus would demonstrate his power, power to accomplish the mission that they had been sent to accomplish. The word of God has power to bear fruit. In our next story, verses 12 to 16, we'll see that the word of God has power to make clean. It has power to make clean. Notice in verse 12 and 13. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. 
Any of you who understand the significance of leprosy will, will recognize and know that those who were lepers were those who were excluded and again, separated from society. It was a, a disease that they were concerned was contagious, a, a disease that marked them out as being unclean. It would affect their social, they would be cut off from family. It would affect their spiritual life as it would keep them and prevent them from being able to worship in the temple. It would, uh, it would affect their future as it related to their ability to provide for their future. In every single way, this man was affected because of this leprosy that he had. And yet we see that Jesus speaks a word of compassion. A word of compassion. The word of God has power to make clean. The word of God coming from Jesus, a Jesus who is full of compassion, can not only qualify you for ministry, but can take care of your sin problem, the problem that separates you from a holy God. Jesus, through his power, can make you clean, as he will make this leper clean. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. This leper did not come setting demands. This leper came in a posture of worship. He comes in a way to to place himself before Jesus, falling on his face and begging him, Lord, in the same kind of expression that Peter will use, that Peter used in the boat. This expression which pointed to deity, this expression which reflected and acknowledged the, the authority and power of God, the origination of Christ from the Father. He comes and places himself in a willing, submissive way to follow after and plead for mercy from Jesus and ask for help. Notice Jesus' compassionate response. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. All throughout the Old Testament, we find that those who touch anything unclean will themselves be made unclean. And so Jesus, in reaching out and stretching out and, and touching this man, would by Levitical law have made him unclean. But notice Jesus, as being holy and clean, touches that which is unclean. And rather than becoming unclean himself, transfers that cleanness to this man. Every aspect that was ruined in this man's life is now made whole. And what's on feature display throughout this narrative is the, is the cleansing work of Christ. We find three times in this narrative the emphasis on cleansing. Notice verse, end of verse 12. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. That's the word katharizo. Jesus, I will be clean. Same word, katharizo. And now Jesus, after healing this man, instructs him to go in verse 14 to show himself to the priest and make an offering for his cleansing. Just want to pause in this moment to talk to those in this room who recognize your uncleanness, that your sin has separated you from a holy God. That you, like Isaiah, you, like Peter, and you, like this man, need to come to a place of recognizing your unworthiness. 
You need to come to a place of recognizing your uncleanness. You need to come to the place of recognizing that sin has separated you from a holy God. And there, but there is a solution. There is a solution that can be found in Jesus Christ. Jesus who paid for your sin. Jesus who offers the hope of cleansing through confession. John 1.9 that says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This morning, do you need cleansing? Do you need personal forgiveness? Do you need to have that relationship with Jesus either restored or initiated? It happens as you come and recognize that Jesus is the only way. He is the one who can provide power for cleansing in your life. Jesus offers this cleansing to this man. Cleansing, which is not only to be ceremonially cleansed, but to be cleansed in a way that would make him right before God. Pure, radiant, spotless. In the Old Testament, we find repeatedly throughout the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 5 and 7 and 11 and 15, the repeated reminders of those who touch that which is unclean will also become unclean. Chapter 11, verses 24 and 25, and by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. That was the standard. That was what everyone expected, but Jesus, because of his power, and because of his ability to cleanse, steps in, touches this man, reaches out with a heart of compassion, and, and pulls him in, cleanses his body. We also find in this verse, we find a word of consistency. In verse 14, a word of consistency. Jesus, in verse 14, charged this man, this leper, to tell no one, but to go and show himself to the priest and to make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus is lifting up and holding up the precedent that is given in Scripture. That while there is cleaning, there also needed to be confirmation. That while there is cleansing that Jesus provided, that Jesus instructed this man to make an offering which was a, a means by which he would come to recognize his sin and, and make an offering for that sin uh, as a sacrifice and then be acknowledged as being cleansed by the priest who would inspect him and evaluate his life. Jesus offers consistent testimony, consistent standard that aligns itself with what had been written in Leviticus chapter 14. The consistency of the word of God that offered cleansing to this man. And finally, we see in verses 15 to 16, we see a word that was from God. A word from God. Verse 15 says, Now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to a desolate place and pray. The point, I believe, of this parenthesis of Jesus' ministry is while Jesus is moving from city to city, while Jesus is healing diseases and leprosy and teaching the people, Jesus was resting and relying and depending 
on the word that would come from God the Father. Finding a place to withdraw and pray. Finding a place to be encouraged. Finding a place to find direction and refreshment. Finding a place to be instructed and encouraged by God so that he could provide the words of power to bear fruit and provide the words that would bring cleansing to those who needed cleansing. Jesus recognized the significance. Even though he was God, needed fellowship in constant communion with the Father. This morning, as God has has called us to the same mission and has commissioned us to the same kind of ministry. He has called us to follow after him. Are you a follower of Jesus this morning? And as a follower of Jesus, are you depending on God's word to bring power to bear fruit? Are you committing your own heart, your own ministry, to the ministry of the words of Christ to bear fruit for those that you love who do not know Jesus. Maybe those who do know Jesus, who, who are walking out of step with him, anchor your heart to the word of God and find that God's word brings power, just like the catch of fish. And also, recognizing that God's word has power to make clean. Maybe there are those this morning who need cleansing, who need a work of the Spirit to forgive them of sin and and to help them be the kind of follower that God has called them to be. We find encouragement from 1 Peter 1, verse 23, that says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, the word of God has power. Trust it. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, is and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Trust the word. Depend on the word. Believe in the power of the scripture to accomplish its work in your life and in the work of those whom you love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder today from Jesus, this object lesson to his disciples, that while teaching the crowds and then ministering privately to the disciples, he wanted them to understand that what was impossible from a human standpoint is possible as the word of God is bearing fruit in the hearts of those we love. God, help us to anchor our confidence in that word and help us to saturate our hearts and lives with that word. May we be like those in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, who are seeking to allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly and then to enjoy the benefits of that as it draws us closer to God and makes us effective servants of yours. Help us to be faithful followers of you the leader. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming this morning. God bless you.